Hear the word of God as it is found in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. We read a rather lengthy portion, the third chapter, beginning at the first verse. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuge in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if anything, you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Amen. And amen. What a man. What a man. And, of course, I refer to the Apostle Paul. 
the things that he did. Teacher, thinker, thought provoker, transmitter of the gospel, transformer of people. Boy, if he had only been married, what else he could do? My, he would have had it. There wasn't hardly anything that the Apostle Paul could not do and did not do. You and I owe him an awful lot. There hasn't been a mature Christian that has not depended heavily upon his interpretation of the life and the meaning of Jesus Christ. He's had his influence upon all of us starting way back. Augustine, Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Karl Barth, the teachers and professors that Jack Willard and myself studied under. And if you've been believing anything that we've been trying to tell you from this pulpit, and our predecessors tried to tell you from this pulpit, you have been affected by the Apostle Paul. He is the one that has formed so much of the thinking which we as Christians hold to be true. And I think if we could call him up from his grave and ask Paul, to what do you owe your success, your prosperity, your effectiveness? And still after 1900 years after your death, you're still affecting people and you're going to affect people who are yet unborn. How did it happen? From my, what I read about this man, his life and his testimony, I think he'd give two answers. Foremost, humbly he would say, it's God. It's God who's made all of this possible. It's God who prepared the way, worked through me, brought about the fruit. The grace of God that I believe in through Jesus Christ. Grace, which is a free gift given by God, which can be accepted only one way, by faith. And it's been God who has done everything that we call grace. The other thing, I believe, would be what humbly he would say he was able to contribute to this working relationship with the Almighty to be effective in the world. As God gave grace, Paul gave pressure. Pressure. That's what he brought to bear upon the scene. And right about this time, I've lost about half of the congregation. Because we are people who do not like that word pressure. It takes more than four words or four letters to spell, but it's a dirty word to us. And it conjures up all concepts of stress and strain and turmoil and that thing that we have every day at work and which some people have in their homes and which you came to church to get away from. 
We don't like to think about pressure. That is what we think is destroying us. I'm sorry. No matter how much we would like to get away from that particular subject, you can't escape pressure in life. Pressure is an absolute necessity to anything that is living and to anyone who is alive. This whole world of ours is held together by pressure. The weather conditions are caused by the atmospheric pressure. An individual cannot live without pressure in his circulatory system any more than he can live without wind in his lungs. If you want to be an individual who wants to find something that will enable you to get away from the pressure of life, there's only one thing that I know of. And that is what is being experienced by people who are right next door to us and across the road in the other cemetery as well. Someone once said to Norman Vincent Peale, show me a place where I can go and find people who are not suffering from pressures and decisions. And he took them to the local cemetery. And that's the only place you will find individuals who do not have to bear the burden of some kind of pressure. And pressure's not all bad. Most of us produce only when we're under pressure. An exam is coming. A report is due on the boss's desk. Relatives will soon be visiting. That's what gets us going. That's our motivation, pressure. But most of us, most of us, get involved by pressure that is generated from forces outside of ourselves, by circumstances, events, crisis, or by some other people who we usually refer to as individuals who are trying to run our lives. Now that's one form of pressure, and that's a bad type of pressure. That's the type that leads to the breakdown the sufferings, the anger, and the hostility. That's pressure that's not good. But that's not the kind of pressure that Paul is speaking about. It's a different type of pressure, though it is still some force. It's self-induced pressure. It is pressure that we bring upon ourselves. And Paul says that is good. Paul says, I was not pressed. He says, I press. I am the motivating factor. I induce this pressure into my own life. I press on to the high calling of the goal of God in Christ Jesus. That's what has enabled him, at the end of his life, to be able to say with the strength, you know, it is not I, but Christ that liveth within me. It is that which enables him to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. All of this came not only from the grace of God, but from the pressure of himself. And that is what brought him to this place of being able to do so much for God himself and other people. 
throughout the whole entire world and throughout all the ages of time since Jesus Christ. And he goes on in this particular passage to the letter to the Christians at Philippi, and he said he encouraged all of us to put on that particular one thing. This one thing I do, I press on to the goal of the high calling of God which is in Christ Jesus. And do it also, he said. Anyone who is an adult Christian, he urges you to do that. The question is, how do we do it? How do we do it? For my study of these 13th and 14th verses of 3rd Philippians, I think there are three things that enables us to practice Paul's primary principle. First of all, it, it requires a belief in a faith that cannot be proven. A belief in a faith that no person here on earth can prove. You see, Paul had a particular belief that some of us have caught from him. He believed that when God in Jesus Christ stopped him on the Damascus turnpike and turned his life around, that Jesus had a dream for his life, that God had a plan for his life, that God, who does not make mistakes, had a purpose for his life. And he believed that God knew what that plan was, and that line by line, step by step, corner by corner, if Paul remained faithful to God's Word, if he would remain courageous in the spirit of faith following God's Holy Spirit, God slowly but eventually would lead him to the fulfillment of that plan. Now, that was an idea that he believed in. And he believed it with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he believed that that is what was enabling him to live in all circumstances, no matter what, fully content. Paul was one of those unique individuals that I think we as individuals should try to become. An individual in no matter what state he found himself. He found the peace of contentment. Because when you believe in that idea that God has a purpose for you in your life, wherever you are, whenever you're there, you have, you see, a belief which enables you not to ask, why am I here? That's what most of us ask. Or how did I get here? But rather the intelligent question of a believer, what do you want me to do? And when you can be in heaven's experience or in the depths of hell and still have the confidence of a faith that you are living through that experience and God has something good to come from it, you have the power of contentment that can come only from a faith, a faith in a belief that God has purpose for your life. That's hard to buy, I know. I don't think it's any harder to buy than an understanding of a 500 or 1,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. You ever do those things? I could never do them, but I have a sister, my only and older sister, Joanne, who was a master of it. And on a dark Sunday afternoon like this, when we were children, she would always get out the card table and 
start to work on one of those puzzles and always try to tell me to go to some other room and get out of the way. She was a master. I could never figure out picking up one of those crazy curlicue pieces that absolutely had no sense whatsoever to its dimension, how it could fit into what was a picture of a beautiful scene. But she'd take one piece and then another piece and then work with them and using her logic, her observations, some suggestions that I would give from time to time, <laughs> which were ever always wrong and which she never took. She'd get that thing together. Maybe it would take hours, maybe it would take days. One I know she worked on took weeks. But you see, she had a picture up here of the original. And she kept looking at that. And then she came back to the individual pieces. And sure enough, those crazy, illogical, nonsensical dimensions that I saw in my hand, sooner or later, they had a place in that puzzle. And without those individual pieces, the picture was never complete. Do you get it? The puzzle of life is like that. That's why no person can prove this belief that you either have or do not have. I, with Paul, believe it. But you see, it cannot be proven. The only time it can be proven is probably that one minute, that one second that time of resurrection, when on the other side we can look back and say, it was you all along, wasn't it? That's the only time it's going to make sense. Paul says here, you know, I am not already perfect. I do not consider that I have made it my own. He couldn't. His finish had not yet come. He could only believe that as individually he took each day, realizing that that was an important part, integral part in the puzzle of his particular life that God had pictured and planned for him. He relates this also in letters to the Corinthians and other books and letters that he wrote. He said, you see, now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see. Now we see only in part, but then we shall see is now... We are seen. I wish I could, in some academic, intelligent way, prove to you that God has a plan, a purpose for your life. But I can't do that, this side of the grave. When we get on the other side, I'm going to be there, and I'm going to say to those of you who believe, see, I told you. But please, for Paul's sake, my sake, and for God who created that plan, believe this, even though we can't prove it. And I know some of you say, I wish I could, I just can't. Others of you say, hogwash. Well, that's your right. Your destiny will decide upon if you believe it or you do not. But one thing I'll never understand, no matter how long I'm in this work, why is it so much easier to disbelieve than it is to believe? You know, the, the disbelievers don't have any more proof than we have. <laughs> but for some reason or another, 
people think that it's just easier to disbelieve than it is to believe. And it's not. All it takes is the courage to say, I believe, even though I don't understand. And you've got to have it. If you're ever going to practice Paul's primary principle, you've got to have a belief in an idea. That idea, even though it cannot be proven. And secondly, you have to develop a memory that does not work so good. Now, that may sound very strange. But you have, according to Paul, to develop a memory that just doesn't work very good. Now, most people take great pride in their memories, if they have one. And most of us idolize individuals who can remember anything. Now, you know, a memory may be a wonderful thing, but... You know, when you really stop to think and evaluate it, what's it worth? Really, what is it worth? Oh, it may help a dumb, stupid, forgetful husband at the time of the anniversary. And it's great for students who are cramming for examinations. It's a great help to salesmen who've got to know the customers and the territory. It helps speakers who, who like the freedom of speaking without notes or manuscripts. And it is a tremendous support to somebody who feels slighted and hurt and who wants to nurse his hurt feelings. And it's helpful if he can continue to remember and not forget the offense that somebody has perpetrated against him. But you know, other than that, a memory really isn't of too much value. The Apostle Paul goes too far to say, in a roundabout way, that a good memory can be quite a handicap to you in life. That a good memory may be the very thing that is holding you back from finding the destiny for which God has created you. He implies, you see, that for an individual who can think only about a relationship that has gone sour, that individual will probably never have the freedom to love, give, and receive again. For an individual who can only think about the horrible days of yesterday, that individual is going to be robbed of the adventures of tomorrow. An individual who can only think about the mistakes and the failures of yesterday is not going to have the courage to resist the fear of going courageously into tomorrow. And an individual who's been very successful in the past and can think only about his monumental achievements and successes, that individual who rests upon his laurels will not have the blessing of finding even greater things that God has in store for us in the tomorrows of life. So the Apostle Paul is saying no matter what has happened to you, be it good or bad, success or failure, Whatever it is, forget it. Forget what lies behind. 
And he put it in the words that I read someone else said the same idea. You never get very far ahead by looking in a rear view mirror. And if you're ever going to practice Paul's primary principle and be an individual who knows the secret how to put stress on the self to be able to produce, you must have not only a belief in an idea that cannot be proven, you've got to develop a memory that doesn't work so good. And the third thing, and most important perhaps of all, you've got to be able to have a concentration that is dedicated and will not quit ever. You've got to maintain a concentration and a dedication on the idea which cannot be proven and you must not quit. Now, to illustrate this, Paul took an example from the sports field that would be known to every Greek. And the Greek word that Paul uses when he says, forgetting those things that lie behind and straining forward to those things that lie before. The Greek word here to strain is the word that is used for a a Greek runner in an athletic contest as he's on the last lap of a grueling race. And you see him coming down the finish, giving what any good racer gives in that final kick. The head is down, the chin is in, the back is arched, the arms are reaching, the legs stretching and the eyes concentrating only upon that tape that crosses the track. You see nothing else. You hear nothing else. Your concentration is so great that all you can see is the goal for which you are heading. And the Apostle Paul says that the Christian the Christian who is exercising the disciplines of Jesus Christ, he must have that same tenacity. He must have that same ability to sweat not only in his body, but to have that concentration that nothing under the sun will ever deter him or detour him from falling into the arms at last of Jesus. And mind you, this is no academic ivory tower person that is speaking. This is Paul. Paul, who for the sake of the gospel, five times received the forty lashes, lest one from the hands of the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. Three times he was shipwrecked. Once for one whole day and one whole night he was adrift at sea. This man was literally stoned by people who at one time called him their friend. He was always in danger, not only from his enemies, but from his associates as well. He was a man who went many a night and never slept, many a day and never ate. And he did it all for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the individual who is saying, be like me. Concentrate on that goal and let nothing, absolutely nothing, ever detract you from the belief in your idea 
that God has a plan for your life and that if you can just cast off every hindrance of yesterday and strain towards that goal, you shall reach the prize, the high prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And when God is finished with your life here, your plan is over, your purpose fulfilled, you'll fall into the arms of Jesus. And you'll hear the Lord say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You fought the fight. You finished the course. You've kept the faith. No matter what day the calendar says today is, we all know it's the first day in the rest of our lives. Nobody knows how many more days God has planned for us individually. But God has a plan. Believe it. Apply and practice this principle that Paul says every mature Christian should follow. Please, folks. Please. Remember, you're not going to escape pressure and in life there is no such thing as a pressure-free life. So if anybody's going to apply pressure, why not apply it to yourself? It's easier to take that way. And it's far more beneficial. Because if you don't run your life, somebody else will. And God's plan for your life is not for somebody else to run it, but to you. You are to run it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Through this coming year, I hope you have a great run. Amen.